This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. We have three different sets of data from three different vendors. Why don't they talk to each other? I just want good data that I can read, and it would be even better if I could see it so we can strategize and benefit from our investment in all of this stuff. What can we do? How do we do it to answer those questions? Jack Tompkins, Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Joel. Good questions. Looking forward to talking about them. (laughs) These uh, people who run middle-sized companies have all this stuff happening around them all the time. And the only way they can make sense of it and be competitive is, you know, to, to look at, you know, their data in whatever way that is. Uh, so why why is it that they they buy this thing, that thing, and the vendors all tell them it's going to work and it doesn't work? What, what's really going on behind the scenes? Yeah, it's, it's all too common. And it, if it's three different systems or three different vendors or whatever it is, the data very rarely effectively talks to each other. And it's a super, super common problem. So if you're listening and you're thinking, oh man, I'm in that boat, don't worry. You're not alone in that boat by any means. But it happens all the time because you don't have something that can clearly identify, uh, to get a little bit into the weeds, clearly identify a, an entry or a row or a metric in one system that clearly ties to the other. And so there's a lot of data engineering and APIs and all that fun, fancy stuff that can link everything together. Sometimes it can be challenging. Sometimes it can be easy as in the very simplest terms if we were to kind of put it into Excel, just like a VLOOKUP and say, oh, it was this, now it's this. And so there are ways to get things to talk to each other. Um, it takes a little bit of creativity though. You know, they keep telling us, and I don't know who they is, but they keep telling us that the world is getting simpler and computers are getting a little easier to use. and. Uh, you know, we should be able to, uh, you know, there's APIs and there's Zapier and there, there's all these different things that are supposed to work together and talk to each other and make our life easier. And every time you turn around, it seems like it's even getting harder and you got to rely on more and more people for help. So where are we going with all this? Yeah, it's a good point because technology is supposed to be your best friend, right? But I guarantee it's one of the bigger headaches. Well, we, sort, we sort of all have a love-hate, don't we? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I do think it's going in the right direction. It's it's never going to be as fast as we want, but Zapier is a good example, right? Zapier, however you want to say it, because um, they are good at linking two systems together and finding some tie so that you can bring multiple sets of data into one place. Is it perfect? No, not by any means. And does it work for every application? No, not at all. But those types of things are becoming much, much more common. And I mean, Zapier's got, if you just Google Zapier, I think there's like five things that are ads that come up before it, trying to get you to go with them instead. So there are a lot of those options that are growing. The big question of how do I get the two systems to talk to each other? It's getting solved, although slowly. I do think there's always going to be some sort, and I don't want to say a manual component to it, but some sort of a human component to it to match the things up or at the very least quality check everything. All right. So let, let's, let's get past that because it's, uh, you know, it's something that could, you know, pull our stuff out, but our hair <laughs> out, but let's just assume that the systems are talking and everything is going fine. What are the, uh, what are the main things that, you know, for the clients that you deal with, 
What kinds of KPIs are they examining? I mean, every business has its own, but what are some big ones that people are looking at? Yeah, it's a good question, right? Um, and so the the business is always, from the clients that I work with, the business always decides on their own KPIs because they know the business much better than I do. Um, but I like to chunk them into three different overarching groups, first being financial, second being uh, marketing, third being what I call operational. So within those groups, again, depending on your business, depending on the business model and all that good stuff, it'll change a lot. But um, there are some very simple things that are common. I mean, I'll say revenue and you know percent to budget and stuff like that for the financial. Obviously, it gets a lot more in-depth for that. You go down to uh, revenue by department, revenue by employee, client, et cetera. Some of those breakdown type things. Marketing, um, marketing effectiveness is the big one. So marketing ROI be something like a conversion rate on a specific email campaign and then operational is all efficiency based so how quickly are we doing the thing that we need to do and how effective are we doing it you know uh you you may or may not uh, know a lot about this maybe you will um when i look at a lot of these uh indicators uh most all of them like all accounting data is all historical i like to look at data that's predictive uh, the way you're going to gain an advantage, I mean, those, listen, there's some advantage to be gained by being efficient, but in a certain way, you have to be efficient just to stay in the game. That's not even an advantage. That's just, that's just kind of the ante to stay in the game. The advantage is really about, uh, you know, knowing something's going to happen before your competitors do. Have you seen any great KPIs that fall into the bucket of being leading indicators or something like that? Yeah, it's it's a great point because in those three buckets, there's the lagging and the leading indicators. I'm glad you brought it up, Joel. Um, one of the big ones that I've really liked with some clients is the sales cycle. And I don't mean what's the whole industry doing. I mean, to get a potential client to a converted client or I mean, obviously a very basic example, but something along those lines. How long are we measuring that out for? And are there different points along the way? Can we sell them along the way? Is there a big sale at the end? What does that look like? Because it allows you to anticipate um, or forecast out your your budget and what you want to do financially and obviously factors into everything else too in terms of planning. Um, but things like that and then uh, cash flow related metrics have been two big ones that I've seen. You know, if, um, if people are, uh, are looking at their sales cycle and, and they kind of have a sense that, uh, you know, when a person starts doing something like this, then they're more likely to be one of our customers. Is that the kind of thing that AI can pick up on and then start to manage that process in some way? Depends on the AI, but yeah, I think so. Um, it's not something I, I do myself for a lot of clients, but I, you know, just being in the data world that I live in, that does come up a fair amount and, uh, AI can be pretty freaking smart. Yeah. What, um, so what are the kinds of things in the sales cycle? Uh, what are some of the triggers that you see that, you know, companies are looking at? What are, what are the big things that they're really hooking into? Yeah. So it starts on the marketing side and then goes to sales typically. Okay. So, um, I was actually just on a client call and we were talking about uh, sort of like email opt-ins and then getting more specific if they're coming to us and they want newsletter A versus newsletter B and they're in industry X as opposed to industry Y, those are, you know, four different paths that they could go down. 
and maybe they're in both industries or maybe they want both newsletters or something like that. So it kind of starts there. And then there are different paths from that. Let me, let me ask if, uh, if companies are building uh, email lists, how many of them are uh, looking at the net growth of those as a, as a predictor? Because to me, that is very predictive. Yeah. I haven't dealt one that doesn't deal with it as a predictor. So I would say at this point in my career, hundred percent of them use it as a predictive indicator. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, for, I, I don't know, I, uh, I'm surrounded by a lot of people who, uh, who that comes to them as a surprise and, and they, they are familiar with that, you know? So to me, that's, that's highly predictive. And it's, if you're, uh, you know, and they may not be predictive of what's going to happen in two weeks, but it certainly is predictive of what's going to happen in two years. And right. if your database is not growing and you sell into your database, then you're going to burn out your database. And the database is going to die. And that's, that's what happened to databases over time. Yes. And, and it just stops being fertile. So um, I'd like to, I'd like to uncover a few more of these. Cause I think these are very exciting. These are the kinds of things that really give uh, clients and listeners of our show uh, an advantage is when they understand, you know, how to predict their future. Because people don't really, they think it's magic. It's not magic. There are things all around us that are very predictive. They're, they're like tells. And, you know, in poker, there are tells. But in, in the real world, uh, you know, there are tells. And we call those KPIs, you know, and that's a tell. So I'd like to try to scratch around and, you know, the funny thing is you probably know a lot of them, but, but you kind of take them for granted and they're hard to pull out of the hat when you need them, right? Right. Oh, that's very true. They're all, to your point though, they're all uh, leading to a data-driven approach though, which obviously I'm a huge fan of. Um, so yeah, let's talk about some other ones. So leading indicators, um, honestly, I'm going to go away from financial because although sales cycle you could you could consider somewhat financial it's more operational but financials they're really the result of everything else that you do in my opinion right they're historical um, in, in most cases they're they're yeah. uh, right and, and operational things are about efficiency um, my sense is that most of these things are outside of uh, are external to us in a lot of cases they're not they're not things that are happening in the business that we control we only control one part of the machine, but the things that are happening outside of the machine, you know, let's think about some of those. And I'll give you, for example, um, if you are a travel company, you might study luggage, luggage companies, because when luggage companies start selling luggage, that probably means people are getting ready to travel. So I'm looking for those kinds of relationships because that's kind of what I want to train people to think about is the relationship between uh, something that's unrelated, but but very much related, not obviously related, uh, but it's not inside their business that is a predictor of what's going to happen to them in the future. And yeah. I just wonder well, to the to the extent how many people are tracking this kind of stuff. That's a very good point. I mean, let's talk topically for a second. Gas prices, um, and as we record, are, are through the roof and they have been for months at this point, but that probably leads to more bike sales, right? Bicycle sales or motorcycle for that matter. Something that's more fuel efficient, electric car you know, sales. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think, but I'm not noticing that behavior is really changing very much. I, I notice there's a lot of complaining, right? but I'm not noticing that people's behavior is changing very much. Are you noticing them in your part of the country? And I haven't really dove into the data, so I, I, I feel uh, slightly guilty just giving a gut-driven answer. But I know more people are making decisions, at least where I am in, in North Carolina, 
to, uh, I'll say, avoid or at least reduce the amount that they're driving. And so maybe that's public transportation. Maybe that's just doing Zoom calls instead kind of thing. I've had those sort of anecdotal conversations. I, I would love to get some numbers from electric vehicles or bicycle sales or something like that to see if it's actually happening. But I think the caveat with that in a larger sense of data is that we're dealing with somewhat of a small sample size because gas prices have been high for a while, but we're not talking five years. We're not talking even a year at this point. They've been slowly increasing, then obviously jumped up quite a bit earlier in 2022. But a lot of people need a whole lot of time to make a decision, a big decision like that, to switch from driving to work every day to bicycling to work every day kind of thing. So it yeah. is a small sample size. Yeah, it, it hasn't been long enough uh, to really, this this big spike here in the last 30 or 45 days, it's not long enough to be able to really kind of look at it. But isn't that what big data does? They look at all millions of data points from all different kinds of things, and then they draw conclusions. So I don't know. Uh, yeah. That's a good one, though, you know, is uh, the idea of gas prices and, uh, and bicycle sales. I mean, they're, they're probably, uh, you know, as one goes up, uh, you know, the other one goes up. So they're, they, they go in the same direction. Bicycle sales probably go up as gas prices go up. I don't know. It, it, right. That's an interesting question. I do know that uh, mass transit has been decimated by the pandemic. Right. And with people staying, uh, you know, working at home. Uh, people are not taking mass transit as much. So we have this hardscape that's built into the, into the society and it's uh, not going that great. I mean, they're, they're not, people aren't using it. Right. And that's to your point about the big data of taking four or five factors together. Yes. Gas prices are up. Pandemic still looms and is somewhat active in uh, some places still. Um, then you've got all the stuff. I did talk with a bike manufacturer at the beginning of COVID and I think to get a very simple part, and I have no idea what the part was, but it was like a 462-day wait to get the part from China or something. So big data comes in and says, okay, we've got gas prices, we've got a pandemic, we've got a labor shortage, we've got uh, parts from coming in from China and delays there and all the stuff that goes into somebody purchasing a bicycle. What is the actual end result? I don't know off the top of my head, but that is a great big data example. You know, I, I, it sort of makes me think of uh, when we were kids and we had to do algebra equations, which I was never very good at. But I remember solving for, uh, you know, for X was never very hard. Solving for X and Y in one equation was uh, was was more than twice as hard. And if you have three of them in there, it almost gets impossible. So when you've got 10 or 20 or 50 different variables, uh, you know, and, and now it's real. Now, now those algebra equations that we dealt with as kids, we, we kind of see that they're kind of real. Not real for me. I don't do them, but, but <laughs> maybe guys like you do them. But you know, there, there's there's all these different permutations, and you almost can't figure it out. I mean, it's uh, it's remarkable. It is. It's it's a fun. I'll say it's a fun data problem to have, and I say fun very loosely, knowing that it's something that I would enjoy doing. Most people may not, but the reason that I love that for business is because all the numbers in the world can tell you a whole bunch of different things, but that's not to get rid of your gut instinct and that's not to get rid of uh hey like that's happening but we just lost three people and we might not be able to staff for that or something like that so there's there will always be the combination of the c-suite leaders saying hey this makes sense but we have this real life thing going on and sort of that that gut instinct if you will 
that always balances out the data. I think it's really cool. You know, that opens up another interesting uh, line of reasoning here. And that is, uh, you know, for me, um, the, the, uh, as computers become stronger and, and smarter, uh, and people are giving up some of the mundane tasks that they were doing to computers and they got to do more thinking and analysis. A lot of people are not in a position to do that, uh, for whatever reason. How are you seeing people raise their own bar? Like, like what are people, what are companies doing to help them? What are schools doing to help? What are people doing to help? How are we helping people to not be irrelevant in the future? I mean, because we have a whole uh, lot of people that are moderately educated. I mean, they're basic educated, but basic is kind of not good enough anymore. And what are we doing to make sure we don't leave these people out in the cold in the future? Yeah, no, it's a good question because the whole thing with technology is supposed to raise the average and raise the whatever lowest criteria, right? So the those mundane tasks, to your point, let's let technology handle them and then leave the people to do the quote unquote smarter work. So I I think, I mean, this is very, very um, topical and, and my world focused, but visualizing stuff like that to actually make something that was technological or data or something like that, and then turning it into an image that's easy to understand, whether you're a numbers person, a data person or not, that whole visual of whatever it is, and I'll pick data dashboards because that's what I do, but um, it makes it feel less like data in that instance. And so most people are visual learners. I like to say that if you put a giant red X in front of somebody, 100% of people will understand what that means though. So along with the technology increasing and kind of changing the face of work, there's the technology that's coming on the side of it that makes the now mundane tasks and everything else easier to understand. Um, and I think that way of thinking is starting to be much more commonplace of, hey, what's happening? Let's look at the tech or how did the tech work? Or in my case, the data. And then what does it actually look like so we can understand it? Um, yeah, you know what? You know what kind of comes to mind as you're describing that is, if the uh, programmers can make it almost like a compute, like a game, if they can mm-hmm. make it a game that, you know, as, as, as the, uh, as the car is chasing over and ready to hit the wall, that you do something to prevent it from hitting the wall, you know, you know, whatever the metaphor is. And then the person knows how to straighten out the process and, and pushes a certain number of buttons to get the car back on the road, the way it's supposed to go. And then the machine keeps going. I mean, if they can make it, uh, you know, like that, something that people can relate to, because I'm very concerned that, uh, I'm not talking about uneducated people. I'm talking about people who just have a basic, maybe a high school education and, and they don't have uh, high tech skills or they don't have uh, other kinds of professional skills. And I'm very concerned that these people who are you know, working on a, an assembly line or whatever they're doing are going to get passed by. I'm also concerned, by the way, that companies who don't raise the bar on themselves, you know, Amazon has set the bar for consumer products pretty high and we have to do that. You know, we have to set the bar high and we have to, you know, we have to raise the bar for each of our companies. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And it's, I, I talk with uh, some HR folks a decent amount and I mean, it gets into all sorts of that labor pool and, and we won't get too deep into that. Uh, certainly not my area of expertise, but um, it is a, 
it's a very interesting thing and what i hear is it it comes down a lot to drive so if uh if they're if the employee or the person or whoever uh is really great on the assembly line they could be perfectly happy doing that if they have the drive to learn the additional thing to bring them to the manager position great if they want to do two things on the assembly like i don't know what it is but it comes down to that level of hunger and i know a lot of folks are they care less about what degree they have and more what experience they have so at some point that becomes uh, more important as you get a little older you know um so let's you know I mean, listen, the, the, what, I, what I think the connection is uh, of this whole education discussion, which I know is not in your area of expertise, but where it bleeds back in is when you're visualizing data, visualizing data is easier for some people, not all people. Some people learn different ways. But, uh, you know, I imagine that there are things that people in your world could do to help people that are not necessarily trained in the technology to be able to use the technology better. So what, what kinds of tools are you seeing in that regard? Yeah, it's so there's there's tools that actually make the dashboards and um, I'll say make the dashboards in two different kind of sides of my mouth. One is the actual person making the dashboard. So it it's a very creative process, believe it or not, even though it's completely data driven. It's a very creative process to make something feel not like data. So anybody can pick it up and say, oh, cool, giant red down arrow. I guess that section that I'm looking at did bad, right? Um, and the actual tools that help make the dashboards. If you're just starting out, Excel is a great place to start. And then uh, most people go to web-based. So the big names are sort of Tableau and Power BI. Google has a version, it's called Google Data Studio that I use quite a bit. There's Looker, there's a bunch of those web-based platforms out there. All of them are similar in function, but not all of them are similar in uh, usability. So there's a lot of, uh, I think like data analytics and data visualization actually becoming classes that you can take at colleges or um, Udemy or however you say that one, the online learning uh, platform. There's a lot of those out there that are teaching folks and even YouTube channels of here, how do you make this type of visual from data in this specific software? Yeah. Are you, um, do you, uh, do you deal with people that have a hard time reading these dashboards, even executives of companies. I mean, they're, they're not all uh, Harvard educated people. I mean, you know, I mean, listen, I'm not overeducated. I mean, you know, we all kind of get through our day or whatever it is we do, but uh, do you, do you find that some people have a hard time and, and, and it just doesn't work for them and they, they need to use it. Do you find use the data in a different way? It's an interesting question because the short answer is not really because it's on the person who makes the dashboard to make it usable for the end user for the C-suite executive or whoever it is. And there's generally a conversation about that. And some visuals work better for some people. I, there's actually weirdly a big discussion in the data community about pie charts and whether or not they're effective at all. People have different opinions on that. So um, things as nitty gritty as that, it all comes down to who is the dashboard for, who is the visual for, so they can make it, uh, the creator can make it understandable to the end user. Let's, let's, talk, let's talk about the, uh, the, the, the I've, been, I've been on the receiving end of some of these dashboards. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I sit on a board of directors and every month we would get an, a, uh, a dashboard from the uh, executive director. And I have to tell you, as uh, somebody whose background is uh, accounting, I'm a CPA by my training, um, 
I think the dashboard covered up most of the details that would allow a more sophisticated reader to notice a problem. And I think it was, you know, that you can use these tools to highlight problems and to shroud problems. And I think, you know, a lot of users are not aware of that and, and they really need to be very careful. So there, you know, there has to be a collaborative process. You can't just have one person design the thing and say, here's the data you're going to get. Uh, you know, how do companies go through a process of figuring out what data is the right data to share with their with their audiences? Very good question. Yes. Um, there's typically a few different layers. So there's because to your point, you can hide a lot with dashboards and you can also show a lot with dashboards. So a few different layers there. The first one I'll call it like the top one is generally the C-suite level. It's quick glance. I've got 10 seconds before my next meeting. Let me pull up a dashboard. Boom, boom, boom. Done. I get the overall story. And then you get into different departments or different levels from there. So the accountant or the CFO or somebody in the finance organization will obviously have a bunch more financial details. They probably don't really care about marketing metrics at all, um, but they'll get into the nitty gritty of the income statement. And that'll still be displayed visually, still be displayed so it's easy to read and easy to translate from the accountant to the marketing person or whoever else it is. On the flip side, on the marketing side, they'll have a very specific dashboard for them. And it kind of goes like that. So each department will have its own main views, main things that they want to look at, um, getting all the way down to a like. And from a marketing perspective, a specific campaign, specific time of day that the email was sent or something like that. Obviously, the CEO probably doesn't care that much about that. So the more you go down that layer path, the more specific the dashboard is still always visually appealing, still always easy to read and translate them. How many how many people are using Excel to build these kinds of models? I mean, you know, I mean, maybe they have a fancy computer system, but but the pie charts and graphs are not that bad in Excel. I mean, it does a pretty good job. So how many people are using it? Yeah. I mean, of my client base, I think about 30%, maybe 35% are still in Excel. So even pretty good sized companies are using Excel. Yeah. Yep. All the time. Um, and get back and getting back to the original question of how do we get the two data systems to talk to each other? The ultimate fail safe is dump everything into Excel and build it in there. Yeah, that's uh, it, it. Listen, it, it works. It, it's not glamorous. It's not. Uh, it's not the most uh, you know perfect way to do it, but it certainly works, doesn't it? It very much does. I I am an Excel junkie. I absolutely love Excel. That is my home base for everything. And sometimes it does make sense. And you can make some very very pretty looking dashboards in Excel. Um, probably not going to be web based or anything like that, and have some of the sophistication or automation that others do, but. At the end of the day, it is very difficult to get rid of Excel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially when you have multiple uh, multiple systems. And I guess if you have a single system, the reason people buy multiple systems is because uh, companies just don't make things that work in every single department or solve all the different problems. So they're forced to go with different vendors for different things. And uh, the computer world is still pretty complicated. It hasn't really simplified as much as we needed to, has it? No, not at all. The more sophisticated it gets, the more complicated it gets. And it's in theory simpler, but it just it doesn't always work that way. <laughs> yeah. Theory, theory and practice uh, have not yet collided in this particular case. That is a very good way to say it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So what do you um, what do you think is the future of, uh, of data? I mean, where where is this industry going? 
it is becoming bigger and bigger. I, so I started my company about two years ago and I had to, for the most part, I had to explain, hey, this is what a data dashboard is. It just wasn't a thing in the small to medium sized business world, at least not a mainstream thing. Now, two years later, people come to me and say, hey, can I get a dashboard that does X, Y, and Z and links to these sources? And that's not because they know me. It's because that whole world is just growing and evolving and there's much more education out there. So and where, and where, where are people mostly learning about it? Magazines? I mean, where, where are these people mostly uh, conferences? Where are they, where are they hearing about it? I think it's more just as you scroll through whatever news feed is your favorite, there's going to be a data topic in there. Even if you're not like checking all the boxes on Google, so it learns what you want and data is not in there, it will find its way in there. Um, COVID actually did a lot in terms of getting data, getting people to understand data because there's, I mean, there was always the question of, okay, is this the right data? What context does this have? Can we do more with it? Where is this from? What time frame? All this other stuff that people really needed to know. And so that actually helped a lot with the overall education level of data. Yeah, boy, COVID really, it really changed a lot of things. I mean, it, uh, you know, many of us were probably using dashboards a long time ago, but COVID accelerated it. Many of us were using Zoom year for years ago, a long time ago, but COVID really accelerated it and, and normalized it. Mm-hmm. And and maybe as things become more uh, more widespread, they become more normalized. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, the more commonplace it is, the easier it is to get started. The easier it is to understand, and all all good stuff. Well, listen, uh, you know the promise of our show is to deliver the inside track on you know whatever it is the best, the fastest, smartest way to get things done. And and you've really delivered on that as far as data visualization. Uh, you know this whole concept of dashboards and the rest and. Whenever somebody lives up to the promise of the show, we always refer to that person as an advantage player. And you've lived up to the promise and, and that makes you an advantage player. So thank you very much for sharing what you know, for telling our, our audience what it is. We'll have your information, your contact info in the show notes. And we appreciate being part of the show. Thanks so much, Joel. This was great. It was a super fun conversation. Excellent. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Audavita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.